Hello and welcome to Microphilosophy, the podcast featuring philosophical discussions with thinkers worth thinking about. I'm Julian Bagini. Today's episode features another philosophy salon recorded live, pre-COVID, at St George's in Bristol. Anarchism today is the poor relation of political theory. It's widely neglected and usually misunderstood. But as our discussion shows, anarchism is nonetheless an intellectually rich and challenging tradition of thought. Discussing it with me were Ruth Kinner, Professor of Political Philosophy at Loughborough University, editor of the journal Anarchist Studies, and the author of The Government of No One, a must-read for anyone interested in what anarchism has to say to us today. Also joining me was Nathan Eisenstadt, who draws on his doctoral research on contemporary anarchist practices in his current role as a senior research associate in domestic violence perpetrator group intervention at the University of Bristol. I began by asking both my guests to sketch out in general terms what anarchism is and what distinguishes it from other political and ethical positions. The way I approach anarchism in the book by way of sort of introducing it is to to try and set it out as a tradition. So I look at it at at a particular historical juncture, which is the late 1870s. And I set out what I think is a a history of of ideas. So there's a tradition of thinking. And I link that to a tradition of movement organising. So the argument that I make is that anarchism emerges as a particular kind of socialism. It's anti-capitalist. And it diverges from the, I suppose, what becomes the main current of socialism, which is Marxism, uh, in its insistence that uh, socialists must be free to determine what socialism, socialism is for themselves and not be restricted by party programs and by policy declarations which are dictated to them from on high. And that's the starting point for then thinking about how that uh, tradition of ideas and how that set of movement organising or that, that kind of tradition of movement organising takes off and the ways in which it gets expressed backwards and forwards by a dialogue between people over time and over space. Okay, and Nathan? So in my work, I refer to anarchism as an assemblage and the assemblage concept is a nice way of enabling us to think about objects which are multiple and internally heterogeneous. However, if we're talking about something which is multiple and heterogeneous, we are also talking about something. So what is the something? What are the logics? So we often talk about logics that allow uh, assemblages to cohere. And so I would say that the the logics that allow anarchism to cohere is prefiguration and the kind of ethos of non-domination. So we can think of anarchism as a prefigurative ethos. So when, when, when we say ethos, we mean a response to the question, how should I live? So and, and a prefigurative ethos is that we should be enacting or we're attempting to enact the thing we wish to see in the here and now. So the kind of the simplest way of putting that is be the change you wish to see. And so the freedom with equality part is this idea which Ruth has already spoken about, which is that if we think about freedom and equality as inseparable, what does that mean? That means that where Marxists would say that we can deliver equality through authoritarian means, anarchists would say there's still an inequality of power, there's still domination occurring. And liberals would say we can deliver freedom through what anarchists would call authoritarian means, through the 
equality of rights. So we all have equal rights before the law, but we all know that we don't have equal ability to enact those rights. So that equality before the law is a false equality. There is profound restrictions on people's freedom. So yeah, it, it's a prefigurative practice of freedom with equality. Okay, great. There's lots there to sort of unpack. I mean, at the begin- early in the book, Ruth, you have this sentence where you say, being anarchist means challenging the status quo to realize egalitarian principles and foster cooperative, non-dominating behaviors. And as you can see, I think that, that single sentence actually captures a lot of the key themes, the challenging of the status quo, the egalitarian element, cooperative, which I think, again, perhaps isn't what people necessarily think of, and non-dominating. Let's sort of like try and perhaps take certain strands of that and look at them in in, in turn. First of all, I think this fundamental idea of the rejection of authority, in particular state authority. I think that most people kind of accept the fact that there are different kinds of state and government are possible, but state and government is necessary. What's most challenging about anarchism it's that fundamental assumption is, is really questioned, isn't it? So what's the basis of the rejection of authority and particularly state authority? What's the case for that? So the, the argument about the state and authority is an abstract argument, and that's the argument that the anarchist is challenging. The mainstream argument in political theory is that the only way that people are going to be brought to cooperate is through force. That if they're left to their own devices, they're either going to fight each other, that's the Hobbesian argument, or they're going to find it so inconvenient to make rules with each other that societies will decline and there won't be a, a viable, long-term, realistic social order. So it's either better for us, for our own security, to nominate someone who's going to make the rules for us and we all obey because that's the only way that we can guarantee a social state, or we're going to find that in our daily business... It's just too much trouble for us to make our own rules. Therefore, we'll give someone else the responsibility for making rules within a particular kind of framework. But those rules will will assume that we are going to be unequal, so that some of us are going to have more power than others. And the anarchist says this argument is just nonsense. If you look at the way that people live, they make their own rules, they live by their own norms, and there are no single sources of authority. That's what any anthropologist will tell you. It's pretty much what any historian will tell you if they look at, at, at the way that social order was, was constructed before the rise of, the, of what we call the modern state, which is a gradual process of centralization and, and sociological change. So when the anarchist says, I reject the state, they're rejecting the argument that says you need someone to tell you how to live. Uh, they're not saying states don't exist. They're not saying that there are no differences between states. They recognize that liberal states are better than authoritarian states. But it's this argument that uh, you have to be disciplined in order to have a social life. That's a false for the anarchist. I think just to add to that, that there's a core belief in the capacity of human beings to self-organize. And we see this time and again when state systems break down that people are able to organize themselves cooperatively. And what anarchists would argue that the state does, rather than arbitrate between these kind of competing factions of terrible human beings, is that the state functions to enshrine the authority and the dominance of the dominant group. So it works to, rather than mediate, 
but to enforce an unequal social system. I mean, what I find interesting in, in what you've said is that there's a common sense that we kind of need a state government authority, but there's also a common sense which actually is in accordance with anarchist principles. Again, in the book, you describe Eric Gill's view. He was saying he believed in general that life was enriched when individuals were able to make their own judgments and impoverished when decisions were entrusted to remote bodies, whatever their qualifications or virtues. Now, what strikes me about that sentence is that I think most people would find themselves kind of agreeing with that, right? You know, if I was to say to you, do you think that generally speaking, people's lives are enriched when they can make their own decisions and they're diminished when other people make them for them, even by people who are benign and have their best interests at heart? Most people, I guess, would say, yeah, I kind of agree with that. And yet, people don't go from that to the anarchist conclusion, right? So there's a very strong belief that Although that's true, we still do really need government and state. And, I mean, is, are you really just saying that there's no basis for that at all? I mean, how do you charitably understand that, that impulse rather than just that people are just completely mistaken? They're just being hypnotized by this dogma that we need the state. Um, no, I don't, I don't think people are, are hypnotized and I don't think people are necessarily wrong to be skeptical about Anarchism, it's, it's a big leap, if you like, from, from the way in which we live our daily lives. But, I mean, the anarchist argument is that because if you order society in ways where you encourage dependency and you make life so complicated that in fact they have to defer to other authorities in order to get anything done, you know, those social relations are, are reinforced and it's very difficult then to think about how you're going to have alternatives. So, you know, and I think we do that from, in, in, in most institutions, you know, that, that, uh, one of the anarchist arguments is that if you look at the way that, that schools are run, not just, uh, the relationships between teachers and pupils, but between teachers and heads, you know, the whole thing is based on a hierarchy whereby you have to get some kind of authorization in order to do whatever it is you want to do. Um, you have to obey rules that somebody else has made for you. Uh, my son was brought up singing a song at school saying, you know, rules were an important matter. Um, I mean, this was the mantra. This was bred in at a, at a very early age. And, and, you know, what happens? You know, people tend to think about how they can, how they can bend the rules, how they can break the rules, how they can subvert the rules. And that's not anarchy either, because it, it, it means you're subverting a system rather than confronting the system and trying to think of ways in which you can directly relate to, to other people to decide what to do. But, but I think anarchy and the state are not polar opposites. There are all kinds of examples of anarchy that, that exist in, in our daily lives. So, you know, when neighbours get together to do stuff, when people get together to, to crowdfund things, I mean, they're cooperating with each other directly in order to, to, to achieve an end. There are examples of that kind of cooperation which don't demand centralised hierarchical authority. But we get used to this, and I think that makes us fearful that we could run everything along a cooperative egalitarian line and therefore, to, we don't have time to, to try these things. So I, don't, I think it's more complicated than just ideological sort of hypnosis or false consciousness, if you like. I think it's also useful to differentiate between illegitimate and more legitimate forms of authority. And you might well say, well, a, a liberal political system is there precisely to, enshri- to give legitimacy to authority, and we do that through voting. Well, anarchists would say that that legitimacy isn't genuine because we didn't consent to be part of that system. 
So when anarchists say we're against all forms of all authority, we're against domination articulated through hierarchical structures. However, if my friend is teaching me to to use a chainsaw, for example, I would defer to their superior knowledge on that particular thing. So it, I'm giving them a certain authority. I'm consenting to a certain authority. If I attend a Kung Fu class, there's a clear hierarchical structure within that class where there's some people who are more experienced, who are teaching people who are less experienced. But I can leave that class at any point. I can't leave society at any point without severe sanctions. So it's a, we need to, on the one hand, highlight the fiction of legitimate authority within liberalism and say that anarchists aren't against all forms of authority, full stop. Well, a good point to make, actually, because uh, superficially one might be thinking about certain things anarchists say and thinking of, you know, uh, there's no such thing as experts or, you know, the, 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 the desire to eliminate hierarchy means that you don't acknowledge the fact some people know more than you do. But you're saying the key point is about the domination. It's the, there's consent. You can consent to put yourself under the authority of somebody else for a particular purpose, for a particular reason. That's different from domination. Uh, yeah, i just add to that that I think the, the point about expertise I mean, the ideal situation, I think, for an anarchist is, is to be able to exercise reasonable judgment. So if we make life very complicated, such that there's no chance that we can know how to decide between alternatives, then that's a, that's a position that we need to avoid. So to give you a, an example, until quite recently, it was possible for people to, to lift the bonnet of their car and see an engine and actually have a chance of fixing something. You know, they could learn mechanics, they could do it. You know, you, you put the bonnet up on a modern car, you plug a computer into it, and someone will tell you if you need to go and take it somewhere. You can't make the judgment. And I think the, the idea about hierarchy and judgment and expertise is about being able to, to have a chance of being able to, to, to know whether someone is is actually telling you something that's sincere, that's right. You know, if you can't do that, then actually you become reliant on that expert and you have to do what they're telling you. I mean, I'm wondering the extent to which, you know, when if one sort of embraces uh, anarchist ideals, there's a kind of almost like a guest out switch that gets sort of plugged in your in your mind. I think most of us, you know, find ourselves thinking that we don't we don't feel dominated, we don't feel oppressed. And so we kind of think there's something a bit weird about these people who go on about the state and being sort of inherently oppressive. And a little sort of example of this, it might seem trivial. I was quite a good boy at school. I wasn't really naughty. I have a recurring kind of dream where I find myself at school as I am now thinking, what the hell? You know, I mean, I, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> you know, this is ridiculous. Like, why on earth would anyone obey this ridiculous order to do this bit of behavior? And so in that same sense, you become an adult and you kind of realize that the kind of forms of authority you just accepted as natural as a child, no longer appropriate. And it seems like, in a way, that's kind of sometimes what happens with this anarchist consciousness, because there's this nice quote from uh, the De Clever, which you have in the book, which says, the basis of all political action is coercion. Right? Even when the state does good things, it finally rests on a club, a gun, or a prison for its power to carry them through. And do you think there's a sense in which when people become convinced of these anarchist ideals, they, you know, the, the, the way they see the whole structure of society fundamentally changes, they see that at its root there is this 
coercive power and what previously seems benign changes? And if so, does that make society an uncomfortable place to be? So I think there's a distinction between state and society. And, and as I say, I think that the state is justified on, on the basis that without it, uh, you're going to live in disorder. So take the state away and you have anarchy as chaos. And the anarchist says that's not true because actually what you have is you have society and the state appropriates, if you like, functions from society. So things that used to be done at local levels gradually over time get taken up and done for you by the state and therefore you become reliant on the state. And the, the reverse side of that is that if you decide that you want to opt out of any of the things that are provided for you, then the state will will show its ugly side and and sanction you. So even if you're doing, I mean, the, the, the quote that you gave, even if you, if, you, if you decide that you're going to be doing things uh, within society because you think they're right, you're not necessarily doing it because you're told to do it. You're not obeying a law. You're not just doing it because, because otherwise you're frightened. You think it's a good idea. That's probably because the rule existed before, before the state made it a law. You know, so it's a bit like, uh, I'm just trying to think of an example. Before we changed the licensing laws, if you decided you weren't going to drink all day, did you decide that because the law told you you couldn't or just because you decided that it wasn't going to be a good thing for you to do? And the difference in your decision and the state's decision is if, if you decided that for one day there was going to be a special celebration and actually the licensing laws weren't fitting in with your plans, then you could be sanctioned for that. And the anarchist says, that's wrong. It should be your decision. It shouldn't be the state's. I think we also need to remember that the state is one institution or assemblage of practices, depending on how you look at it, through which domination is articulated. And that because anarchists oppose domination, anarchists oppose all forms of oppression. So the state is one form. Patriarchy, capitalism, racism, white supremacy, ableism, these are all different constellations of discourses and practices which limit our possibilities for becoming. So as a person raised as a white man, the constellation of discourses and practices known as masculinity delimits my possibility for becoming. So it delimits the kind of person I can be without facing particular sanctions. And it does that unequally. So patriarchy the reason that anarchists are, in my view, oppose patriarchy, in, it, in addition to the other manifold harms, is that there is this inequality of possibilities for human becoming, and that in itself is a form of domination. Why do we talk in terms of domination and inequality rather than talking about like the liberation of human beings? If we talk about the liberation of human beings, then we get quite quickly trapped in this essential idea about what it means to be human. So there is debate around the degree to which sort of the classical anarchists committed to essentialist ideas around what it means to be human. But there were debates at the time where you had your Darwinians coming, your kind of social Darwinists coming and saying, the human nature is red in tooth and claw, therefore we need a state to mediate conflict between human beings, mediate to sort of quell human nature. And Kropotkin, for example, saying, no, there's a much more cooperative dimension to human nature. Now, 
we could spend a huge amount of time debating what the real essence of human nature is, and we could use that those claims as a basis for how we organize society. The problem is we're always going to come to a stalemate around who can make the true claim around what, he, what it means to be human. Actually, we don't need to do that. All we need to say is what kind of world do we wish to create? Do we w- wish to create a world of non-domination? And if so, what does that mean? So that's why we're using this non-domination rather than freedom or liberation or something. So this, it seems to be essentially kind of pluralist idea. And this is something I got often from, from the book, the very idea that pluralities of anarchism and pluralities of anarchist is that there's a, a, a real reluctance within the tradition to be too prescriptive about anything, essentially, because all these things have the, the capacity to therefore limit us, and it's the limit, limitation of human possibility that's the problem. And that, that perhaps is also a reason why it becomes more difficult to articulate a clear vision of what is desired, in a sense, which is perhaps to, to the disadvantage, rhetorically at least, of anarchism. Because if you're a communist, for example, you have an idea, you can spell out, this is the kind of society we want, and you can describe exactly how it will work. If you believe in liberal democracies, same kind of thing. But it seems to me that a lot of the time, anarchism has a more open-ended attitude to what we might become, and that actually makes it, by its nature, difficult to specify the kind of society that anarchism would make possible. Is that fair as a characterization? That's sort of fair. I mean, I, I, just on the point about the communists, I mean, because the communists are always telling us that the, what we thought was communism isn't. Um, so, you know, there's a bit of imprecision there too. But I think there are principles of anarchism. So if you, if you say, you know, one of the things that you want to do is to pursue non-domination as a principle and you're resistant to the idea that there can be a moment of freedom where everything is going to be resolved because the anarchist says that's never going to be the case. The nature of our relationships with each other are basically dominating or potentially dominating. We have different capabilities, we have different strengths, we're, you know, we're, we're a plural society. And so there's always going to be a kind of a power relationship between us. And the, the trick, if you like, of the anarchist is to say, um, or the aim of the anarchist is to say, how can we organize our institutional affairs such that we can avoid the entrenchment of any one form of domination such that that's going to be the basis of, of our social life? So what the state does is say we're going to entrench the domination of property, for example. So we're going to defend people's right to ownership, knowing that most people don't own very much and a ver- very few people own virtually everything. And that's the domination. So the anarchist says, so we're not going to have property. That's one thing we won't have. And the other thing the anarchist says is if you want to remain vigilant to the entrenchment of power relations and you want to avoid single sources of authority, then actually you have to organize from the bottom up. That is, you can't have rules that everybody adopts as some kind of inheritance without having a judgment about that. You have to make those rules by yourselves and keep revising them. And if you're going to do that effectively, then the principle is that you have to to descale your institutional arrangements such that you can have some kind of community ethos, if you like, or or face-to-face relationships. You have to have small-scale organization. How within that then how you organize, the anarchist is, is, is going to disagree with other anarchists, but, but basically the rules should be made by people themselves. There should be no single points of authority 
Uh, and in order to do that, then you have to organise on small scales and federate across. Nathan earlier was talking about the state as being just one form of, of domination, which I think is significant because a lot of the sort of discourse is about, you know, the resistance of state authority and people's right to choose themselves. Now, superficially, that could sound a lot like what you hear from the libertarian right, who basically say, you know, let's let's make the state as small as possible, let's let people be free. But of course, the libertarian right has fundamentally upholds property laws, which is the thing the anarchist uh, rejects. Now, could we say a little bit about that, though? Because the property thing is obviously something that pe- people struggle with. And uh, you, you mentioned the book Proudhon's distinction between property in dominion and property in use. Can you say about that distinction and, and, and how perhaps that might shortcut some of the cheap objections to the idea that the abolition of property is just yeah, a non-starter? Okay, so Proudhon is the, is the guy who, who, who's the first one really um, in the history of ideas to call himself an anarchist in a positive sense. And in 1840, he writes a book called What is Property? And the answer he gives is property is theft. <laughs> it was a book that sort of kick-started, if you like, a, the sort of a good part of the socialist movement. Marx was a great admirer at that point of Proudhon. And what Proudhon does in the book is, is distinguish between property that we're using and property that we can claim as ours in perpetuity, and that's dominion. And what he says is that since the, the abolition of tyranny and the French Revolution and uh, the introduction of constitutional government, when people thought that they'd been freed from enslavement, actually what's happened is that the Constitution guarantees this second form of property, that is property in dominion. And that means that people who have property can keep it forever, pass it on to, to whoever they like, they can keep it forever, and they can accumulate more and more and more, and leave everybody else property less. And not only can they claim this property uh, in perpetuity, they can claim property to waste. So they don't actually have to do anything productive with it. So I could buy up, uh, if I had the money, how many buildings, you know, three, four, five, you know, buildings in Bristol, uh, and decide to keep them empty. And that would be protected by law. That's property and dominion, and it's property as waste, and Proudhon says it's wrong and it's unjust. And he says the only solution to this is to have property in use, and that means you can have what you use for now. Proudhon imagined that um, actually what that would mean in the context of France in the, in the, the mid-19th century was that people would have small plots of land, effectively, uh, and live on what they could produce or what they could then exchange with other people. As, as time went on, Proudhon's idea became much more associated with a form of communism. So the idea was that you would simply regard all property as part of the commons uh, and no one could claim rights to it in perpetuity. And this was the kind of practice that was uh, adopted, in, in uh, for example, in Spain during the revolution in the 30s. So what happened in the collectives in Spain was that people would redesignate the land as the, the village property and they would farm it and, and use it in common. And it's, again, one of those examples of perhaps how, you know, um, things can be sort of seem to be more in tune with common sense. Because I think 
if you think about land ownership in particular, I think a lot of people could be easily persuaded that the idea that someone has a right to own land in perpetuity is ridiculous because, you know, the land belongs to everybody and that people should have a right to, to use it for a limited period to, to benefit. But the idea that actually you can own land forever seems to be a bit crazy. So that's kind of one, one perhaps a bit of anarchist, um, ideas can have a bit of, a bit of uptake. Uh, but one thing I wanted to just, um, approach here was there's always a danger in this kind of discussion we're going to make anarchism seem sort of more sort of palatable and and uh, easy than that it is having sort of like perhaps some people come through the door thinking anarchism that's a bit sort of dangerous and crazy i think that just sounds lovely it's all about sharing and everything it, it is it is very challenging isn't it in particular there's some stuff you say in your book and um, quoting i don't know how much this is you or how much this is just the people you're discussing in the book who are quite scathing about a lot of people in society who would perhaps consider themselves to be, you know, liberal, progressive, on the side of good causes. There's this quote here, lily-livered members of the alternative middle classes, hippies and inner-city posers who attack capitalist injustice, but their opposition comes from security and it sustains capitalism rather than threatens it. So, you know, this kind of like sort of protest a lot of us do but we're actually sustaining the system. And I think most provocatively, this idea of the promotion of all sorts of single-issue campaigns is a telltale sign of class advantage. And you quote Audrey Lord, who says, there's no such thing as a single-issue struggle because we do not live single-issue lives. I wonder if either of you would like to just take, take up that baton and sort of like issue that challenge to people who think, you know, they're on the right side because, you know, they're, they're, they're marching for the planet, the climate, good, good causes, or even on a single issue around, say, feminism. What's, what's, the, what's the, is the problem with that? Okay, so this, um, it's, it's a quote. It's, it's not me. It, and, <laughs> and it comes in a discussion in the book where I'm talking about class. And the, the general point I want to make is that although anarchists use the term class quite often, they don't use it in the way that uh, say a Marxist would. So they don't think of class strictly in terms of one's relationship or one's ownership of the means of production so that you can distinguish between a proletariat and a capitalist. Actually, anarchists tend to think of class as much in terms of status as they do in terms of ownership, which is why you get within anarchism, uh, or you can get a dismissal of, of bourgeois society and of bourgeois customs or ways of living lifestyle and conspicuous consumption, all sorts of things like this. So the, the group I was quoting uh, was actually Class War, uh, and it was, a, it was a piece that was written by a member of Class War, so you can't even think of it as a, as a Class War position. And this guy was writing in the 80s when I suppose Class War were at the, the height of their anti or their first anti-gentrification campaign and deeply suspicious of student groups primarily, I suppose, who they felt were not really understanding the issues that they were trying to grapple with down in the East End of London and were sort of simply pursuing gentle, from a class war perspective, kind of reformist issues that were really not going to help working class people. Now, what I then say in the book is that that, that position has itself been attacked and critiqued by anarchists uh, who take very different sort of stances on um, what class war would consider to be a single issue. So there were two things that were going on there. One was that class itself is quite a complicated term in anarchism. 
and two, that it's it's a, a point at which anarchists themselves disagree. There's to the point, though, that it's very comforting to believe that you can kind of chip away at societal injustice like one issue at a time. And surely whatever variety of anarchists you are, you're kind of arguing that it's much more structural than that. Is, is that true, Nathan? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think we need to caution against purity um, here. And there's within anarchist social movements, within left social movements, we are demanding the impossible. We're consciously demanding the impossible because we know that the thing that we want, no matter how close we get, there will always be more work to do. And when we're demanding the impossible, we're incredibly hard on ourselves and on each other. And it's really, really easy to call people out and say, you're not doing enough. However, that also runs in parallel with the need to profoundly reflect on what we're doing and the extent to which it's causing harm and the degree to which we are complicit in harm. And I, I prefer that as a way of thinking about it. And I think, you know, the question that you raise, which causes almost all of us perhaps in this room to reflect on the ways in which we're imp- implicated in harm-causing systems is really important. I think what Ruth highlights is that that class war position is one current within contemporary and historic anarchist thinking. And it's really important to point out that feminist, queer, anti-racist anarchisms and queer feminist, anti-racist movements and and many other marginalised movements within dominant movements have been at the forefront of that kind of organising. And it's it's almost a slight on those forms of organising to call it a single issue because what people within those movements would say is that you say class is the kind of primary way from which other forms of oppression unfold. If you were thinking, particularly in the US, but also in also in the UK, that white supremacy arguably can be thought of as a primary signifier through which capitalism as we know it today came into being. So you can also argue from that perspective. So I think we're right to critique single issues when we're thinking about it within the context of maintaining the status quo and anarchists are always thinking about whatever the issue of the time is within a wider context and thinking about the systems which bring that into being. I mean, it's interesting what you were saying there about how you, you're self-consciously demanding the impossible, knowing you're ever going to reach it. It reminds me actually of something Jesus said, you know, be ye perfect, you know, which of course, uh, presumably he knew people couldn't be. But there's this, this tradition of kind of a, a moral challenge to sort of strive to be better than we know we can be. The reason I'm sort of picking up on that was, again, something that you pick up in your in your book, Ruth, where you say that the communards, the maconovists, the, the Spanish anarchists are often cast as starry-eyed champions of noble but doomed causes. People look at the history of anarchism and there's this sort of like idea that it's a, it's a story of repeated failure and the failure is meant to be indicative of the fact that these anarchists were utopians, unrealistic utopians. But actually, in your book, you sort of challenge that and say that actually, you know, there's a strong current in anarchism of of actually sort of rejecting the idea of utopia. And that's kind of the point. 
How does that work? How is, how is anarchism sort of, as it were, anti-utopian, despite the fact it seems to be calling for something which is more perfect than we can get? <laughs> so, uh, utopia is such a tricky word. So anarchists, I think, are practical utopians. And they, they're necessarily utopian to the extent that they reject uh, theories of history that say, specifically a Marxist theory of history that says there is going to be a crisis of capitalism and that's going to be the route to transformation of socialism and we know it's coming. And anarchists say, no, the only way we're going to get change is if we do it ourselves. That's the only historical factor, if you like, that, that, that's going to, that's going to, to transform the way that we live. So if you're going to think about how you're going to transform your life, and this comes back to, to, to what we were saying earlier about prefiguration, you know, so if you want to be the change you want to see, then, then there has to be some idea of the change you want to see, right? So in that sense, you can think of goals towards which you want to move, but the goal towards which you want to move is not a blueprint. So as you get nearer, it gets further away. So you're always, you're kind of like the great white shark as an anarchist. You're always progressing towards the thing that you want to achieve that you know is never going to be perfect because there's always going to be something else to, to overcome. There's always parallelship. There's always flux. There's always shift. So you can't imagine a perfect world. And that's the point at which the anarchist disagrees with the liberal because the liberal says, I can write you a perfect constitution and it's going to be good forever. And the anarchist says no, because as soon as you say it's going to be perfect, you're going to be entrenching a set of power relations, and then you're going to be enforcing those power relations through the, the use of violence. So the only perfection you can have is the one that you can't reach. So justice is imminent, everything is shifting. And that's the sense, I think, in which the anarchist is an anti-utopian utopian. Yeah, I would agree that the counter-utopian current is, is that a blueprint for utopia is a new form of oppression. And I think it's for this reason that it's better to think or it's more useful to think in terms of an ethos. So an ethos is not a mode of becoming towards a fixed point. And arriving at that fixed point would be death. And Gayatri Spivak talks about ethics and uses the example of brushing your teeth. And so why, why do we brush our teeth? We know we're going to die my teeth are only going to get worse. So why bother? It's a response to the question of how should I live in the present? It's not because I'm going to attain perfect teeth. And that's how I think a more anarchist approach to how we live in an anti-utopian, utopian way. I think that's, that's really just to get that, the extent to which anarchism can be a kind of work in the world, even when there is no, as it were, anarchist system in place whatever that might mean for me one of the great values of this whether or not you come away from this session as a fully fledged born again anarchist or not is i think these anarchist strands of thinking really do challenges to question things which we just take for granted as being you know just almost like natural parts of society and politics and and none of them are natural if we decide we still want to have them it's because we've decided to have them it's not because they're just there and uh, there other other options are available and i think that's a very valuable contribution even if you don't want to go the whole hog with it so thank you so much to both uh, nathan and ruth thank thank you to you thank you
Thanks for listening. I call Microphilosophy the longest, slowest running philosophy podcast in the world. I started it in 2011. There have only been four seasons and fewer than 30 episodes so far. If you'd like the next 11 years to be a bit more productive, please do support the show by sharing this episode, subscribing or leaving a review. You can find out more about me and sign up for my free weekly-ish newsletter at julianbugini.com, where you'll also find links to hundreds of my articles, numerous videos and podcasts, and my books. You can even become a supporter and get access to exclusive content as well as regular online Café Philosophique-style discussions. So, until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye.